hit the record button. I can sit oh. you record it. <laughs> All right, here with uh, Worshipful Brother Matthew Koppel, and we are back in uh, Missouri, not, not uh, O'Fallon or St. Louis, where I, I've had the pleasure of speaking with um, Brother Randy Sanders, but rather Kansas City for, again, Worship Brother Matthew Koppel. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you. It's a, it's a great honor to be on it. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of exciting things happening in Missouri. Uh, I've included a, a link in an email blast I sent out about it, and I'll include a link in the description to this video. But, you know, uh, uh, Missouri is celebrating 200 years of Freemasonry in your amazing state. So congratulations on that to yourself and to, you know, all the, the Missouri Masons. Thank you. It's actually very exciting to think about 200 years of Freemasonry in Missouri. Um, I'm probably not alone in sometimes uh, getting stuck in this idea of, you know, things of being in, in, in Missouri, things not being very old. We don't keep a lot of old things around the state. A lot, you know, buildings fall and are rebuilt and it's very hard to find anything in this state that's as old as 1821, honestly. You, you probably won't find too many farms, too many buildings. It's not like going to the Northeast, right, where you can walk through a small town in upper New York and, you know, every building there was built before 1800. That's really not the way Missouri developed. Uh, maybe St. Louis has some really old buildings because it's a very old city, but Kansas City has always been kind of a, they never, they never stop long enough to keep the old, so everything's kind of new here all the time and renewed. So it's kind of, uh, it's kind of strange to think of something being in Missouri for that long, 200 years. It's kind of strange to think of Missouri being a state for 200 years. Honestly, 200 years is a long time. It, it is, uh, you know, my, my heart breaks a little bit when you talk about um, you know, uh, uh, older buildings in Missouri, uh, you know, not sticking around. One of the things I've tried to emphasize with this podcast, uh, because to be honest, I, I, I don't really like people very much, but I do like architecture and buildings and historical buildings. And, you know, Freemasonry um, has produced some absolutely amazing buildings uh, well, since 1717, right, even before that, depending on how you want to operative Mason or suspective, I mean, here in Windsor, the Windsor Masonic Temple, my home temple is celebrating its 100th anniversary. Uh, and credit to everybody who has been a Mason in Windsor for the last 100 years for keeping this, this temple going when so many Masonic structures have, have been lost over the years. It, Chicago, Toronto, um, it's, it's just, it's great to see, you know, one thing I, I always uh, really love is when a Masonic temple, whether it's a big grand structure like the Windsor Masonic Temple or Detroit, or, you know, even if it's a smaller farmhouse, you know, when it has a history and, you know, is decades or centuries old, I think that's something really worth celebrating. And in Missouri, you know, even if the buildings themselves aren't sticking around. The fact that Freemasonry has been around for 200 years, the institution, uh, it, it really is something to celebrate. So, and kudos to the Grand Lodge of Missouri for, you know, the bicentennial celebrations. Again, there's a link in the description. I'll put it down there. It's great to see them, you know, recognizing this milestone. I think that uh, a lot of the, the, celebratory events are going to be online as well. So I do encourage people to take advantage of those. Um, there's, there's some, some uh, I think, I know in the past few months, there's been some great, uh, great videos on uh, the history of the Grand Lodge, many of the interesting people. You talk about old buildings, Kansas City, Missouri um, is host to, on our, at downtown, in downtown Kansas City, there is a beautiful temple um, that was built in 1910. Um, and it is a dedicated York Rite temple. The first, the, uh, the first floor is kind of a lobby and, um, and, and, uh, and public area, and it's, it's in the Beaux-Arts style. The second floor are two full-size lodge rooms, um, one of which is now used for OES, the other one which is still an active lodge room. The third floor is a, uh, is a York Rite uh, floor. 
and it has a very small, they call it the Rose Room, they have a very small uh, room where chapter and council meets, and then they have a magnificent two-story auditorium that was specifically designed as a commandery asylum. And uh, that building, uh, like, all, like all buildings, you know, they struggle to, to, to keep it up and to, to make sure that they can keep people going into it, but it is a fabulous piece of architecture. You look on it in the outside, it stands kind of alone now on its block with a, a parking lot next to it. So you don't really, when you see it, you're just like, it's kind of out of place now. Because it used to be, you know, part of an entire line of public buildings at that point on that street. So, but when you walk inside of it, you are transported into an entirely different world, a world of the early 20th century. And it is fancy, I mean, it's fantastic. They've even got the original elevator in it uh, which they still use to this day. So it's one of those elevators that has the little uh, has the little cage kind of thing for a door. And you know you have to push you have to push physical mechanical buttons for which floor you want to go up and down. So it's it's really a magnificent, uh, really a magnificent structure. And then another thing that uh, we have coming up, and and I will try to publish this episode. Yeah, I'll publish this episode before the event, so I'll leave a link to tickets, but you and I both have tickets for Esotericon 2021. Um, and I very much am looking forward to that, as are you, and I'm gonna be interviewing both some presenters and the organizers of Esotericon 2021. Uh, just on your end, talk to me about, about that, about your excitement for it, you know, why, uh, why it is that you purchase tickets and, and will be attending this year? Well, I've, um, for me, for a long time, Freemasonry has kind of always been, for me, not just something that I go do to see the boys, but it's always been something that is a spiritual path for me. Um, I'm very, very open about that. My father actually said once that uh, for him, uh, and this is kind of heretical in Missouri and probably most Freemasonry, but he said, for me, you know, going into a lodge, as he said, is the closest thing I ever feel like I'm going into a church. And I've kind of inherited that, that spirituality from him. Um, so I have for many years really uh, tried to study several of the things that they're going to talk about in Esotericon. What excites me about Esotericon is that it's out in the public, it's in the open. Uh, when I first started studying this stuff, probably way back in the 1990s, uh, when I was, you know, a college student, um, you didn't find too many texts. You only had to go, you had to go look through, uh, you had to find a new age bookstore somewhere. And when you went in, when you came out, you know, everything was kind of in a brown bag, just as if you went to a liquor store, right? Because you didn't want anybody to know you were carting around those strange books about the golden dawn or about magic or, or about, you know, esoteric Freemasonry. You just didn't want people to see that good, good, polite people didn't read stuff like that back then. So it's nice that today in this environment, it is out in the open, it's public, people feel comfortable in discussing these topics, people feel comfortable in, in going to these things. So I'm really excited about Esotericon and, and what it represents. Um, my wife and I used to go to like comic book conventions and things many years ago and science fiction conventions. And I always complained. I said, why is it that people feel no compunction at all about going to a comic book uh, convention and dressing up as Sailor Moon or something like that, or a Star Trek convention and dressing up like a, you know, like a, somebody at the USS Enterprise. But we feel like we have to hide our heads <laughs> if, if we want to go and we want to talk about the Western mystery tradition, right? Sure, you can talk about Sailor Moon and dress up like it, but don't talk about the Western mystery tradition. And uh, so I, I, I'm just, it excites me about Esotericon because Esotericon is all about the Western mystery tradition. It's all about its various aspects. And it's all about bringing those things into your life as an active way, as something other than just being an armchair, uh, an armchair quarterback. So I, I, I think the world of Joe Martinez and the other men who are putting this together and presenters like uh, Chuck Dunning, you know, I have been following him for years. Um, he's a, well, just, if you haven't read Chuck Dunning, for those who are out there and you're a Freemason and you think there might be more to Freemasonry than some green beans, Chuck Dunning should be the first place that you go. He should be the first book that you read, Contemplative Freemasonry. Um, these guys are thought leaders in 
rejuvenating our fraternity as a spiritual path, as well as a charitable, social, and fraternal path. The, well, you know, I have a very, um, I, I, I've been starting to develop a, uh, a, 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 and this is a good thing that you're on the podcast, a, a discomfort with the spiritual, or, or with the, I guess the question is where, where does the, the esoteric versus, I don't know what the right term is, practical, like, like, where do you find that that balance? Because I've been myself, uh, having said that, I'm looking forward to to Esotericon, uh, and I, you know, I appreciate the work that people like Chuck brothers, like Chuck Dunning, are doing. Um, but I have found a a streak of, you know, Joe Rogan calls it like woo in Freemasonry that sometimes is is you know an example. I was, uh, did a first degree or, or I attended a first degree of somebody. Uh, and this was way out in the boonies. Uh, and I got a ride with somebody to it, but it turned out that the candidate lived very close to where I live. So I actually got a ride back with the candidate. Uh, and it was a good trip. It was about an hour, hour and a half to get back. So I was asking him about why he joined and blah, you know, what, interested him in Freemasonry and you know he started out somewhat guarded in his his reasons why but by the end of it you know it's you know he's telling me that uh, you know the the there was actually probably several civilizations that existed before the ones we know and most of them were probably aliens and you know even though he recognized I was too low to understand he's sure that you know, once he gets up to the highest levels, they have this technological secrets and he's done the research. And, you know, once he gets to, to the Grand Lodge level, he'll find out where the, the treasures of the ancients are. And if you look at space and the point is, you know, I, I just said, okay, okay. And he did not last long in, in Freemasonry. Uh, you know, the, the, the danger is, and I know it's not the fairest thing, is sometimes when, when people talk about the esoteric aspects of the craft, I, I think back to that gentleman who thought that, you know, once he gets to the highest levels, you know, the treasures of the, the ancients will open up to him. I think the term he used, if I recall, was the technology of the great ones, right? And it's like, so I guess the, the, the dangers of, of, of that versus the benefits of the spiritual aspects of the craft. I guess, how do you find that proper balance? And also, how do you make sure when people are joining, they can join for spiritual reasons, but not necessarily to uncover, you know, like I said, the technologies of the great ones or, or that type of thing. Well, okay. First of all, there's crazies everywhere. And uh, it doesn't matter what you do. There's crazies. Um, uh, I, um, I grew up in an, in a, in a town where everybody was evangelical Christian. And we had a group of people who are in that particular town who believed that all sickness, all illness, anything from a common cold to cancer could be cured if you simply prayed enough and were virtuous enough as a person. And they traced all human illness fundamentally to sin. Um, now, they didn't consider themselves crazy at all. Me, I'm still going to the doctor. Okay. If I have cancer, I, I please pray for me. Uh, prayers work. And I, you know, I definitely want God to watch over me as he does everybody else. Great. But I'm still going to get chemotherapy <laughs> because God helps those who help themselves. Right. Um, there's a gentleman by the name of Michael Shermer, who is actually, he's, he's an atheist and a skeptic. But uh, I really like his books because I'm kind of an analytical guy, which is going to sound strange uh, to somebody who likes to do esoteric Freemasonry. But I'm in a very analytical profession as a, as a computer programmer, and I tend to look at things in terms, of, in terms of logic and code. One of the things that he says is, always be open-minded. And I'm getting the quote wrong, but it's, I've got the, the paraphrase. Always be open-minded. 
just don't be so open-minded that your brain falls out. Um, you always have to have a filter. Just because you say, you know, just because you label something with esoteric, it's the same way if you label something Christian or you label something Buddhist. Uh, I have Buddhist friends who believe very firmly that if, you know, that, that their masters can walk through walls if they just concentrate enough. Now, is it possible? Okay, perhaps. I got to say, I've never seen it. And what I understand about physics would probably, I'm not sure that that would be possible. But, you know, that's what they believe. Um, I'm perfectly fine for folks to believe what they want to believe. Um, I'm not so certain that it's my job as a person or as an individual to tell another person what they believe. I, I, I've always been kind of live and let live, I guess a little libertarian in that way, um, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Um, I will tell somebody who's in that situation, you know, I don't think you're going to find what you're looking for <laughs> in Freemasonry. Uh, a lot of times you can't really uh, convince them otherwise, right? Because what are they going to do? They're going to tell you, well, you're not high enough degree yet. Once you get to the 32nd degree or the 33rd degree or whatever, then you'll find out and you go, well, I am a 32nd degree. I'm in the Scottish right. Well, once you get into the Grand Lodge. So those are the kind of people you honestly can't really convince anyway. I mean, logic doesn't really work with those folks to begin with. And I, if you're one of those folks and you're watching this podcast, I do apologize to you in advance for offending you, but just because you say you're esoteric, just because you think, uh, just because you're religious, just because you're spiritual, just whatever label, new age, whatever label, it does not uh, divorce you, does not absolve you from the requirement that you approach uh, whatever you're trying to study sensibly, right? Um but let's but let's 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 go back just a couple of uh, ways. Um, you know, I, I talk kind of from a Christian perspective because that's obviously where I was raised, and that's kind of the the the, the ocean that I swim in. But you know, in Christianity, we say um, faith is believing in the unbelievable, right? I mean, we as Christians believe that a man was literally raised from the dead, right? I think most of us know that in terms of physics, that too is probably not possible in terms of physics, right? But part of being Christian is having that belief in that resurrection. Is that crazy? Well, if you're Christian, you don't believe it's crazy. If you're not Christian, you just might believe that that's crazy. If you are, many sects of Islam believe that the prophet Muhammad um, was, you know, went to heaven. First, he went to Jerusalem and he went to the, to the, um, to, to where the Al-Aqsa Mosque stands now, and he got onto a horse, and he jumped on, you know, he jumped the horse, and he went to heaven, right? Is that crazy? Well, if you're not Muslim, you may think that's crazy, right? If you are Muslim, it's an article, it may be an article of faith. So I know I'm probably not giving you a, a, <laughs> a good answer, but the only answer I can say is, I, whatever you choose to believe is your business, what you do with that belief could become my business. I mean, if you're using it to harm me or you're using it to, to harm my friends, then that belief becomes a problem, right? If it, you know, it's like the libertarians like to say, you're right, your right to uh, defend yourself ends at the tip of my nose. That's kind of how I feel about, uh, about religion, spirituality, and, and believing things. Whatever you want to believe, if you want to believe that space aliens have founded civilization, eh, your business, you know? But um Let's make sure that we, I still think that you have an obligation. I think every human being has an obligation to, to look at his world, look at the environment around him and to deal with evidence and things as you see um, and to understand the difference between objective things that I can see, that I can do and that which is subjective, which I feel may be true and which I have to find other methods to, to think about, right? You have to be able to keep those separate in your head. I, um, you know, you, you brought up something earlier uh, and it, it, it got me thinking about some videos I've seen. Uh, uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, sci-fi conventions, things like that. I myself am a horror fan, so I've been to many, many horror conventions. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street is the best. But um, I also, you know, uh, was, I've, I've kind of lost track of it a little bit, uh, but I was a, a sci-fi fan. And, I remember, you know, you mentioned Star Trek, 
Uh, I don't know if you're a Star Trek fan. You do have Yoda behind you. So I don't know if that means you're on the Star Wars side of it. Uh, I, I love Star Trek and Star Wars, and I love them for different reasons. But uh, I was... I actually got to see Star Wars when it first, I'm old enough to have, you know, seen Star Wars when it first came out in the theaters. It was the very first movie I ever saw in a theater with my father. We kind of went on a date for my birthday, this father-son thing for my birthday. So for me, that, that moment was very special. So I've been a Star Wars fan ever since I was like not quite seven years old. And then Star Trek, I kind of got fond of when I became a, when I became a college student, but I love both of them. I love science fiction, fantasy. You know, I love all that stuff. So this isn't, uh, this observation isn't uh, original to me. I saw it on the YouTube, but it, it did get me thinking. Um, you know, I, I uh, born in 83, so I, I kind of came across Star Trek Next Generation when I was young. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that show in particular and, and Captain Picard was like, and Star Trek, uh, that Star Trek episode or that Star Trek series in particular was like uh, famously, you know, pro pro science and and very anti spirituality. You know, there's that famous episode where uh, they're studying some uh, they're studying like a pre war civilization, and then they accidentally uh, the star you know Star Trek or, or Starfleet accidentally. Uh, shows themselves to the villagers and then one of the characters suggests that Captain Picard you know go down and give them a way to live and become like a savior or a religious figure and you know Captain Picard famously refuses and says no we're going to try to explain this to them in scientific ways and, and make them understand that there's nothing supernatural about this uh, but the later Star Trek series and, and science fiction in general seems to be much more have a, a spiritual element to it and a spiritual component to it. And I'm just talking on the fly here, but are, and this could be applied to Freemasonry too, in the sense that it seems that as our technological, as we have advanced tech, you know, with technology, we have more Zoom, you know, we're, we're doing more and more of these things. It seems though that there's more and more of a hunger amongst people for spirituality and for spiritual growth, um, which maybe is, is being reflected in not just Star Trek, but in a lot of TV shows nowadays, there seems to be a greater emphasis on, you know, this spirituality as opposed to technology. Uh, it seems that we've reached a point where we're almost have so much technology where we find discomfort in it and we're longing for more spiritual answers to things. Whereas maybe in, you know, the late eighties, early nineties, it was the opposite. We had, you know, we were more looking at technology as a savior uh, or rationality. And I guess the question is, is that something that Freemasonry can offer to people is a, a spiritual, a place of, of spiritual growth and esotericism uh, that, you know, really does, in a sense, shun technology. I mean, it doesn't shun it, but at least in a lodge meeting, you know, one thing that should be par for the course is all cell phones get turned off, right? It's it's a place kind of separate from the 24-7 online, internet, Twitter, cell phone world that we kind of find ourselves in. I think you're definitely onto something. Um... So one of the things I think historically, I, I'm also a history geek among all other things. Uh, one of the things that I found interesting historically is the back and forth relationship that mankind has, humankind has with technology. Um, even as far back as 2000 years ago, more than 2000 years ago, we have the, the, uh, the myth of Prometheus, the idea that he brought fire to men, right? And he gets punished by the gods for bringing fire to men because fire is the earliest technology that human beings have had, right? We've had it. In fact, it may be that fire and, and learning how to deal with it may be one of the things that, that made us human, that made us transform, evolve into our present form. Um, but we see this, we see this constant tug with between technology and spirituality, and, and people are 
want to use it, but we're always a little afraid that if we use it, we become a little less human by doing so, right? And we don't just see this with the myth of Prometheus. Um, there is, uh, from, uh, from the days of the church fathers, there was this idea that the world before Adam fell, before the fall of man, there was this idea that the world was one where man didn't need technology. He didn't need to till the earth. He didn't need to hunt animals. Women didn't need to suffer during childbirth because God provided everything. And then men, we had to go and eat that apple and suddenly technology appears, right? So there was, this has been a tension that we have always had. And it really became, I think it really started to become uh, a spiritual problem in a way uh, especially in the Enlightenment, because we suddenly started, technology became a lot more important to society. I mean, it's always been important to society. You know, human beings are tool-using creatures. We have always used tools. We have always used technology. And technology has always moved forward, sometimes slower, sometimes faster. But starting in the Enlightenment with the printing press, knowledge just goes all over the planet, especially all over Europe, but, but everywhere Europeans went. Um, and with it comes technology and the ability to take these ideas that we have and pass them around. And suddenly you see this idea kind of cropping up religiously of the universe as being a clockwork mechanical thing, just like, uh, just like a clock that they would make, or just like any of the interesting little, uh, the, the, the micro, or not the microscopes, the, 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 uh, the telescopes and things that they were making, right? They're like, well, the world must be that way. We've discovered calculus, right? Newton and, and Newton uh, discovered calculus. And they're like, oh my, you know, with calculus, we can, we can make the world completely predictable now. The world, therefore, must just be a clock. And that's where we get the deist idea that, you know, God is, God turned on the, the light switch and then went into the kitchen and got some potato chips and is just watching the TV. Uh, it's kind of the deist idea that comes from this idea that, you know, the world is clockwork. It's just, and then we steadily got this idea mixed in with this is this idea of progress that as we come up with every brand new technology, it makes our world better and better and better. But even over the modern period that has been, that that idea has been trashed time and again. For example, we have the German romantics, right? Their idea was, wait a minute, we've got, all this technology around, we got all these people doing commerce and stuff, and really we should be getting back to the land. And then you get up to World War I and you have that the, the horrible carnage of World War I, where for the very first time we see industrial carnage, right? And you see all of these literature coming out after World War I, Ernest Hemingway and uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls and um, uh, Remark, the existentialists, all these people going, look what technology got us. It, it blew chunks and it killed all these people. And is technology really a good thing? And then we, you know, we went a few years longer and we get up to the, to the 60s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. We've got televisions. We've got computers right on top of that. We got cell phones. And suddenly people are like, oh my, look, progress again progress again. We've got all these great technologies. Human society must go at the same rate, but human society doesn't change at the same rate that technology does, right? Uh, just because we've got great machines doesn't mean that we develop the wisdom to be able to use them wisely, right? I got a cell phone, but I can still use it to, I can still use it to dial up uh, porn or, uh, or, or, or drugs or, or to try to hurt somebody with it. I can hack it, right? There's all kinds of things. I'm still a human, and so I think people have started to see, especially since the 1990s, they've started to look at what, and I'll say this, all major religions really, but especially Christianity has really adopted, and I think part of it's just because that's the zeitgeist that we've come up, this idea of the clockwork universe. And well, where, where does spirituality fit in if all we are are just machines who are running little programs? You know, what is life about? If all God really did was turn on the switch, walk into the TV, with, walk into the TV room with some potato chips and just watch the world unfold. What kind of religion is that? What kind of spirituality is that? How do I get answers? And the thing is, is that we can't get answers out of a cell phone. We can't get answers out of a computer. We can't, right? The computer can, 
And I, I work on computers every day. I'm a computer programmer. I'm a data engineer. I deal with the world's information every single day, moving it back and forth across the globe. Uh, and it's something I love to do, but it can't answer the most fundamental human question, which is, why am I here? What is my purpose? There's no computer program that can answer that. There's no machine learning algorithm that can handle that. But you know what? Places like Freemasonry, like a Masonic Lodge, with a group of men who are united in their intention to answer these fundamental questions, that's a place where they can go. Now, do you have to go to a lodge to find those answers? I would say obviously not, but I can tell you from my personal, and, and, I, and again, I, uh, I, I, I believe in God, I love God very much, and I, I, I do my best to try to, to, to be as good a man as I can every day, but I can tell you sometimes, especially when I look back at the church that I grew up in, it was, in a lot of ways, it was very sterile. I mean, they had a whole lot of rules that I had to follow, but they didn't tell me really why. And eventually, by the time I got into my teenage years, it had really turned into, well, if you say these prescribed prayers and you, and, uh, you read these prescribed passages then, and you're a really good person, then God's going to make you rich. I was like, what does that have to do with anything, right? <laughs> That's not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for a get-rich-quick scheme. I'm looking to understand what my place is. I am this really tiny speck in a universe or even a multiverse that is so immense that I don't even have the capacity to be able to comprehend it all. And, and you know, I'm not even an ant in this universe. An ant has more presence on this planet than I do in the whole universe. What is my purpose in being here? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? Freemasonry, I firmly believe, can help with that. Now, I will, I, I will firmly agree with the United Grand Lodge of England and the landmarks of every Grand Lodge that Freemasonry is not a religion. You know, my father, I don't think, was right in that in particular. Um, although, like I said, I have a lot of sympathy for that. But it certainly can help you fill in those gaps. And it certainly can help guide you uh, on your journey. And I think it's valuable for that. And I do think that's what people, not everybody. There's a lot of people who come into Lodge because they want a good meal and fellowship with their fellow men. And there is not a darn thing wrong with that. Not a thing at all. Human beings are social creatures. We all need a place to belong. And a Lodge is a wonderful place to find a feeling of belonging. But I do believe there's a whole lot of men as well who join Freemasonry because they want more than just the feeling of belonging. They want to go to that next level and they want to ask that question. Where am I? Who am I? Why am I here? And that they can, that Freemasonry can provide some techniques to help, to help them formulate those answers for themselves, to help them in that, like Bob Davis likes to say, in that lifelong hero's quest, right? So yeah, I think, that's what Freemasonry can be. It doesn't have to be that for you. I think uh, my father or my grandfather used to say that, that Freemasonry was different for every single person. And I fully agree with that. I don't think that we have a situation where Freemasonry for me has to be the same thing as it is for you. We are very different people. We have a lot of things in common, but we have different aims in life. We have different stories. We've come from different spots and we're going to, our destination is always going to be a little different. So Freemasonry is going to have something for each of us. Question is, do you want to go get it? To what extent do you think people are looking for, you know, quote unquote, the hero's uh, journey versus it, it seems to me more and more that, you know, if anything, the, the, the kind of the guiding force for most people is, is you know, a, a, a life of comfort or security might be another way to put it. They, you know, they, they I want to wake up at, you know, eight and I want to work nine to five and then I want to go home and grab a beer. And so long as I know that my paycheck is coming in and, and I have sufficient money to, you know, do you have the exceptions, the guys like, the, you know, Steve Jobs, whoever it is, you know, who, who are like, I want to 
take this big risk and potentially lose all my money or whatever it is to do this thing. Um, but it, it seems like more and more, even though there's a lot of talk and I hear people saying, you know, people are searching for meaning, they're searching for purpose, they want to challenge themselves. I don't see that happening a lot, which is concerning to me. It seems that more and more the average person is just like, what is the, what is the simplest and easiest way I can make it through this thing without experiencing a great deal of, of, of discomfort, as opposed to kind of a desire to, to, you know, be the best worshipful master of a lodge, for example, or whatever it is. Like, do you, do you think that people still have a desire or desirous of a hero's journey? Or is there a, a push more and more towards comfort and security? And so long as I can make my bills, you know, and, and, uh, and I know what my life is gonna be, I don't have to, to you know, change the world or, or go on a spiritual quest. Or do you think that that's actually not the case that people really are desirous of a spiritual journey and a spiritual life and they're just maybe I'm, I'm just not seeing it or we're not seeing it in the world. That desire is not being filled. Or is it just that people are scared that if they take a risk, you know, if they, if they go out there, you know, people got to eat. So, and they're tired and, you know, they're being bombarded by all sorts of stimuli every day. And it's just, they don't have the same, uh, the pressures are different than what they were 50, 100 years ago. Because of that, people's attitudes toward life are different. Well, of course, Maslow's, Maslow's hierarchy says, right, that, that fundamentally basic security is at the bottom, the basic of the pyramid. You got to be able to get enough food. You got to feel, uh, you got to feel secure in your person and being able to get food for your family. At the very top of the pyramid is self-actualization, right? And according to Maslow, we gradually move up that period or move up that pyramid, right? And we're at various pieces of it throughout our lives. It's not a one-way journey up. You know, sometimes you go all the way to the top and then you fall down, right? As soon as you may get sick or you lose your job or uh, other times you stick at some pyramid. Uh, it's in the middle of the pyramid. Um, so I, it's a hard question to answer, to, to say, well, what, what is everybody like? I'm not quite certain. I think that the hero's journey is applicable to us all because I do believe that, um, and while I'm not, I'm not a psychiatrist and I'm, I'm certainly not a, a experienced uh, in, in Jungian psychology, I can say that I feel that all humans, because of that, whether you believe in the, the, the hierarchy of needs or not, all humans do fundamentally have this need to actualize ourselves. I think every single human being at some point in his life asks that question, why am I here? The question, though, becomes... How much energy am I going to use to find the answer to that question? And we're going to have different people are going to have different sets of needs. I've kind of been asking that question since I was a little kid. I mean, I remember I grew up in, in a rural part of Missouri where there wasn't a lot of ambient light. And so I walked around and I got to see a lot of stars, right? And I remember always thinking, why are they there? You know, and and of course, my parents would give me all those children's stories about why the stars are there. But, but I always had that question. Why are they there? What, what am I doing here in this little, why am I this little person in this really big place, right? Not everybody is like that. But I think everybody has that question once in a while. Not everybody really wants to seek that question because going after those questions requires a lot of work. And, and by that, I don't just mean it requires a lot of effort. I mean, it also requires a heck of a lot of courage because you end up sometimes coming to really answers that aren't very satisfactory, right? Sometimes you, you, you come up and, and you have to be able to say, I'm just not sure. Or you have to look deep inside yourself for these things. And I, I think that looking inside yourself can be a very difficult thing. All of us human beings are very bad at self-reflection and I'm probably at the top of that list of being bad for self-reflection because I, I'm an extrovert. You know, I, I like to, I like to be around people. I like to be in the center of the room. Um, and, and when, you know, when, when you want to be the guy who wants to be in the middle of everything, right. It, it's kind of hard to, to look down deep and find those, 
find those things you don't want to see or that other people might not want to see, but you have to do it um, if you really want to seek it. I think everybody has that capability. Everybody has that capacity. And I think that everybody goes through those stages, whether they want to or not, because that's a psychological need of ours. I don't think that everybody manages to go straight to the top of Maslow's pyramid through their lives. A lot of people are content. Once I've got my basic needs met, I'm content with watching sports. And you know what? Maybe that's self-actualization for them. I Last night, I was over at my neighbor's house and we were enjoying some conversation. And one of my neighbors just blurts out. He says, I only do two things, he says. I drink and I watch sports. That's what he does. He loves it. He goes to work during the day. He comes home. He likes to drink some beer and some fireball and he loves to watch sports. And when he talks about it, he's very animated. Uh, I am not much of a sports person. I'll readily admit that. But I was wanting to watch a ball game after listening to him talk about, uh, talk about I guess there's a, a, a basketball tournament going on. I wanted to go watch it after he talked about it. Clearly he's animated. Clearly he's questing. Clearly he's answering questions. It's just not the same questions I'm asking. So I think that probably people do feel that way. Um, just may not be in the form that I would do it in. Maybe, I don't know. I, ah, again, I'm giving you these weird, uh, these weird half answers. And it's because I just, I feel uncomfortable talking for all of humanity. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, I you being, know. The, being the representative of all humanity and their psychology. <laughs> I'm not somebody's sure. Gotta, somebody's got to do it. So, so why not? Why not you? Why not me? Right. I'm not sure I'm representative of the world. In fact, I'd say most people would say I'm not because I'm a little crazy. But uh, aren't, aren't we all? Aren't all nations? <laughs> got to be a little bit crazy. Um, well, the, okay, then let's ask the crazy question. Why not? You are, you are a computer programmer. Uh, yep. I, I do not know anything about programming computers or how any of that stuff works beyond, you know, Silicon Valley is my, currently my favorite TV show. But beyond that, I don't know anything about computers or how it works. Uh, but then I'll, I'll ask you the $25 million question. You know, do you think we're living in a computer simulation? My guess is yes, um, but it'd be irrelevant anyways. If you know, it's it's all a company simulation. So, what difference does it really make? But do you think that we uh, we find ourselves living in a a computer simulation as you know the Lex Friedmans of the world uh, and Elon Musk's thing? I love Lex Friedman, by the way. I think he he has a great podcast. Very I compare. I do not believe that we're living in a simulation, but if we are, the programming really sucks. <laughs> I gotta tell you, this is the suckiest simulation I've ever, I wanna, this is worse than The Sims. Uh, I, you know, if you're gonna, so masters of the simulation, really, do you mind promoting me? Um, you know, send me to a tropical island, Bora Bora somewhere, I, that, that would be fine. Uh, having to stay here in mid-Missouri with the nasty weather. I, uh, I don't want to do that anymore. So if you don't mind, uh, but no, I, in all seriousness, I don't believe that we're in a computer simulation. Now, can I give you objective proof? No, I can just say Occam's razor to me. Why do we need to be in a computer simulation when, you know, it can pop up on its own? And, and, and let's put it this way. If we're in a computer simulation, uh, if we're in a computer simulation, uh, does that mean that, that whatever simulated us has to have some sort of biological basis, right? So, uh, so somebody somewhere has to be real, I guess. So why not us? Why does it have to be somebody one step away from us? I say, why not us? So, but that's not particularly logical. It's just, I just don't see a reason why we would need to be in a computer simulation. We could be. Um, if I were inside a simulation, how would I know otherwise? I don't know that I could know. Um, and I'm not sure that the proofs that have been advanced are particularly uh, uh, particularly good either, because again, how do you know you're a computer? How do you know you're a program? I, yeah, I, no, I just don't think so. I, but if it turns out that I'm wrong, I don't know that I'm gonna know. 
So, and I don't know the consequences are going to be that bad, right? So. Well, that's, that's, you know, the very, that's always the, the cool question of the thought experiment, right? Is like, okay, so how, how do you definitively prove one way or the other, right? Because the, the simulation experiment or hypothesis itself really is just a, a game of probabilities. It's uh, what's it called? I can't think of the term now. Um, anthro it's basically anthropic reasoning type of thing, right? It's like, well, yeah, you know, we, we see video games and, and virtual worlds becoming more and more realistic every day. Is there a point at which they become so realistic that, you know, we, we couldn't tell that they, and then, you know, you kind of reason it backwards from that and say, you know, so if it's possible, then would somebody have already done it and created us, right? Or, or you know, it could be backwards too. Like uh, there, there could have been a civilization that, you know, developed a billion years after the big bang or something and then they created it and they just you know they can make one day in our times a second like it's it's an anthropic question but you know the thought experiment then goes to is there an actual scientific way to like is there a testable hypothesis in all of this and i'm not sure there is it's kind of a fun you know it it takes the pressure off in a sense right if you think well this is all a simulation then it's but you know the, the actual ability to test it in a, in a scientific way. I don't know how you would if it's an all-encompassing simulation, right? If it's end-to-end. -end. Presumably, though, there, theoretically, there'd have to be a way. The fact that we could ask the question makes me suspect that there would be a way to test it, you know, because if you create a simulation... You can ask the question, you can probably come up with a way to test an answer. Yeah, and if it was a perfect sim simulation, define perfect as you will, you know, it strikes me that the question would perhaps never occur to us uh, at all, because that would be, you know, just the fact that we can ask the question means it is a simulation. Uh, you know, the alien overlords or whoever it is, they'll, they'll let the glitch in there somewhere, because why would you, why would you simulate something that could then question its, its origins in reality? Or maybe taking the simulation thought, I have a couple thoughts on that, but taking the simulation thought further, perhaps it's not a glitch, but it's a necessary byproduct to be able to do other things. For us to be able to ask other questions, it's sort of like, well, you can answer question A, B, and C. I have to give you the ability to do question D as well, because otherwise you won't be able to ask questions A, B, or C, right? Um, you know, going off the computer simulation into evolution, there's a whole lot of features in biological bodies of various animals and things that you would think to yourself, why is that there, right? For example, why do we have this nearly, uh, you know, why do we have these vestigial, vestigial tails and vestigial organs, you know, that looks like they probably belong to fish? Well, it's because, by, it's because evolution is not perfect, right? It, it's good enough. And it's not guided in that particular way. It's that, it's that uh, uh, animal A had three offspring and the offspring, the second offspring was, had one of those, had a, had a mutation and he just happened to have marginally more children over the last, over the next, you know, marginally more ancestors over the next couple thousand years than the others. And he was really lucky and didn't get eaten by a Tyrannosaurus Rex, right? So, so you can imagine sort of the same kind of, of thing happening in a simulation. But I would also uh, invite you to think about this from a 10,000 foot level. Think of, of the idea of a computer simulation as in a way being the ultimate argument from, for, from intelligent design. You know, human beings have been, have been hypothesizing the existence of deities and that humans, the universe, and everything is created since we were human. In fact, <clears throat> maybe before. I think there's a lot of evidence that Neanderthals had symbolic thinking. And, you know, I mean, they put ochre over their bodies and they buried their dead. Uh, they may very well, and, and they, they, they engaged in what looks to be sympathetic magic. Um, so they obviously felt that there was something out there that was controlling things. So we have had this argument from design from the beginning of humanity. And 
it didn't hasn't really aged well as we've discovered more about our world the the various arguments put forth the the you know the first the six days uh, in Genesis, you know, the, the, the creation story in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, or the creation stories of the Maya, you know, who said that, that everything began in a, in, a, in a cave or, you know, various myths, they haven't necessarily aged well. So we've had to come up with myths that, myths that conform with society as we see it now, with the environment as we see it and the environment as we know it. You know, in the, in the 80s, when I was a kid, there was a strong push uh, especially here in the Midwest, for what was called intelligent design or creationism, and they tried to match um, uh, match Darwin's uh, theory of natural selection and neo-Darwinism against the biblical creationism, and it didn't work very well. I mean, they don't mix very well. So you can see the idea of us being a computer simulation as another form of this idea of intelligent design. Maybe we, maybe our God, so to speak, in this form is actually a computer programmer somewhere who has put together Earth as a simulation. It, to me, it matches historically and philosophically with the way human beings have been looking at our world and our origins from the beginning of time, which also tells me no matter how technology, how technological you are, there's still a spiritual core to us all. <laughs> I, that, anyway, that, that's just my opinion there. I, I'm probably going to get in a lot of trouble for this podcast. I can't imagine the amount of email you're about to get. I do apologize in advance. I'm fine with it. I'll take all the emails. <laughs> I, you know, though, there's a, there's a slight, um, you know, the, the devil, the devil's in the, the details. There's a, uh, so there's, there's intelligent design, and then you can contrast that, which Really, I think when people talk about intelligent design, I think what they actually mean is is purposeful design. And I think there's a slight difference between those two things. You know, uh, uh, I've been involved with political stuff in the past and there's this, so in Canada, we have like ridings. We have 338 ridings. And and if you're politically inclined, what you can do is you can go to this website. I don't remember what it is now. And you can type in like, you can set different parameters. You can say if the Liberal Party gets this many votes, Conservative Party gets this many votes by percentage, and then you just hit enter, and then you see the the results of those parameters you've set on on the screen. You know, uh, I suspect it's possible that you know when I say we're a computer program, I don't mean we necessarily in the sense of, of you know you and I were designed if computing power was sufficient enough and I have no idea how, how it would have to be or if it would be possible to create a computer so powerful you know it, the the computer programmer some nerd somewhere in some other universe could just sit there and be like what happens if we had a universe where the mass of the electron was this and the um uh, gravitational constant was this and then you set all these constants you hit the enter button, which I suppose would be the equivalent of the Big Bang, for lack of a better, and then you just run it out. And again, because you can set time up however you want to, you know, they could be running through the the simulation to see what would that produce. For all we know, you know, the the program might not even know we exist. You could still be checking out how, uh, you know, how some other star, Alpha Centauri, is doing, and right? has it made it to. Uh, to our solar system yet, but I do. It's a byproduct. <laughs> it might not even yeah, yeah. We could be the least important part of the simulation. He could actually only care about, you know, the the planet Zod, where they're having some amazing things, and we're just some, you know, backwater part of the simulation. But I think it's just an interesting, interesting question in terms of, of you know, it, it leads you into fun areas. And I think that's the fun thing of, of esotericism is I don't necessarily believe it all or don't believe it all, but the, the, the exercise of engaging in these ideas and in these thoughts and somebody like a Chuck Dunn um, and a Joe Martin, you know, these Ryan Flynn, all these, these guys, um, you know, it, it, it kind of causes you to, to, 
it creates a more full lodge experience and a more full life experience because, you know, it allows you to think in, in different ways and open yourself up to different possibilities and engage in, you know, a new perspective that may, even if that perspective isn't quite right, it leads you to the next perspective, which could be right, that type of thing. I've always struggled to identify myself in some ways. Uh, you know, people say, well, are you an esotericist? And it's like, well, not really. I'm more of a philosopher. And, and I say that because I'm far more interested in questions than I am in answers. I love asking the questions and I accept the possibility I may not be able to come up with answers. Um, for example, I firmly do believe that uh, that God created the universe or the multiverse or whatever it is. Um, how did he do it? I don't know. I'm pretty sure it wasn't exactly as it was written out in Genesis because, well, that was written out 2,000 years ago by men who didn't have physics. But, but saying that does not mean, oh, my heavens, you're an atheist, you believe in a clockwork universe, and, and you don't believe in God, right? I, I want to make that clear before I get expelled from the Grand Lodge and its 200th anniversary. <laughs> That I, I firmly believe, and part of that's why I study esotericism. I think that yes, there has to be a, there has to be a link somewhere between the, the subjective things that we experience and the objective world that we that we also experience. There are things we can test. There are things that are testable and are falsifiable. There are things that are not testable and not falsifiable. For example, I am quite confident that my wife loves me, um, but there is no test in the world objective test in the world that I could come up with to prove such a thing like I can prove the speed of light. I can't prove that my wife loves me. She's been with me for almost 30 years. She, you know, we, we've been together through, through thick and thin. Uh, how do I, and I say, I love her. Well, how do I prove to you or anybody else that I love my wife? Well, I could probably list a thousand different things, but you could go through each one of those and say, I know people who don't love their wives who do exactly the same thing. That's an example of something you and I both know is absolutely true, right? But we can't prove it's true. We can't do it objectively. We can't falsify it. Um, and to me, those are the most fascinating questions. Um, I, the speed of light is an excellent question. I'm, I'm glad that it's been answered. But for me, the most fascinating questions are the ones that don't have the easy answers and that you can't obviously do an experiment for. Why, you know, like I said, why am I here? What is love? Why do I love people? Why do I feel this way about my wife? Why is it that I feel this uh, combined excitement about my son going on to his next adventure after high school, but I also feel this unfathomable grief that somehow it's not like he's dying, but it's like somehow he's leaving me. Why do I feel that? There is no test for that. So, um, I think those are the fascinating questions. And I think when we talk about whether we're a simulation or not a simulation, or whether we go back to Bishop Paley's clock, or, you know, we, even with, with, with uh, Dawkins, you know, and his, his theories, they're all about human beings asking fundamental questions about who we are and what our place is. And those are fascinating and important. And I think we all have them. We just don't all chase after them with the same amount of, of effort. Well, speaking of, of effort, um, you know, a good place to kind of uh, wrap this up is something, you know, that does take a lot of effort, but it's very rewarding is, you know, Masonic Lodge activities and events and we mentioned before Missouri, Sunway's 200th anniversary. For yourself, you know, you are a past master of two lodges. And, you know, you know, we're recording this in June, so we're coming up to the summer. I understand that Missouri takes July off, if I recall correctly. Some lodges do, some don't. Um, uh, so what's up? What's happening with, with you know, uh, Freemasonry in Kansas City and in, in your lodges, anything exciting coming up? And, and are, are your lodges doing anything particular to mark the 200th anniversary or is it all being coordinated through Grand Lodge, through your Grand Lodge? Well, uh, 
I don't know much about the schedule in Missouri. I, I apologize for that. I apologize to my fellow Missouri Masons because I am far more active with a lot with my lodge, Mount Zion Lodge in Kansas. Um, and that's really what I kind of consider my home lodge. Um, I'm very proud to have been raised in Missouri and I'm very proud to, to be a Missourian, but, but I spend more time with Mount Zion. I can say that one of the things I'm looking forward to, and I, I encourage any of our uh, Missouri uh, Masons, if you're interested to, to look into this, is that we are uh, my Yorkrite group, which is in South Kansas City, uh, the Kansas City chapter, Kansas City Council, and Kansas City Commandery. Uh, they are hosting a, uh, a Yorkrite festival in July. And uh, if you've ever wondered about the York Rite, uh, uh, about the various York Rite or American Rite. When in, uh, when in July? Oh, I'd have to go look it up here. Uh, give me just a moment. So let me find it here. No worries. While you're doing that, I'll take this time to uh, just mention to everybody, uh, you know, if you like these videos, et cetera, et cetera, then uh, comment on the video. You can like the video. You can subscribe to me on YouTube. You can also find us on Podbean, Spotify, all those cool spots. You can send me money through Patreon to keep this going because I am trying to make this a professional endeavor. Uh, and Patreon always helps. And yeah, just uh, um, I said, take the time to support the podcast however you can. It is much appreciated. The more subscribers and interactions we get, all the better. And, you know, the more, the more people comment and subscribe and like, the more people will see Worship Brother Matthew Cobble. And I talk all about uh, whether or not we're in a simulation. And we can both get kicked out of our respective Grand Lodges together. So it'll be fun. There we go. And yeah, we'll just, we'll <laughs> and we may never do a podcast again, but <laughs> this one was fun. If I was going to get expelled, I'm glad it was here. So uh, I'm happy. July the 23rd is going to be the, uh, the York Rite Festival. Uh, Friday 23rd, we will do the chapter degrees. And on Saturday the 24th, we will do the council and the commandery degrees. Uh, I must tell you that uh, if you are a man, even if you're not a man who's deeply into esotericism, if you are asking questions about Freemasonry and about the three degrees and about the lessons that are contained in those degrees, you owe it to yourself to check out the York Rite uh, and the Scottish Rite. I'm a member of both and I, I absolutely must do both. I would never do one or the other. Somebody asked me which one I prefer. I just have to look at them like they're dumb because uh, I can't imagine not being active in both of them. Um, but I strongly recommend getting in touch with, uh, you can contact me if, if you're from Missouri and you want to to get into it, you can contact your local chapter if you know. If you don't know your local chapter, uh, feel free to contact me. Um, you can get me, you know, just uh, leave a comment, I guess, on the YouTube page, and, and and Brother Adamson can just send me a send me a note and say, Matt, find this guy, find this guy's local chapter, and uh, and we'll get you hooked up. Um, I, I it's a it's I love I love the degrees of the Orkrite. I love our meetings. I think they're very meaningful. There's a whole lot there to absorb. You can spend a lifetime in Freemasonry uh, if you like to ask questions uh, about your life. And Cameron, thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, I really appreciated the, the opportunity to get expelled with you and, <laughs> and, to, uh, and to discuss these, these ideas. This conversation went all kinds of places and uh, it's extremely interesting. I could do it for another 12 hours, but I'm not sure your uh, viewers would appreciate that so much. So well, I will definitely have you back on. Uh, I'd be happy to discuss this some more. What is um, either Missouri or Kansas? Um, what, uh, for, from your area, from Kansas City, sure. what is it uh, um, like? What is it most famous for? Is there like a type of uh, drink, or you know, Kentucky's got bourbon? Is there anything like? What's your most famous? Uh, thing. Kansas City, Missouri is probably most famous for barbecue. Uh, Kansas City style barbecue is pretty famous. There's a whole lot of people who live to our south who would disagree with that. Folks from Nashville, folks from Texas, um, but I think any, and folks from Georgia, but I do believe that uh, anybody who has, uh, is a real barbecue aficionado understands 
that Kansas City barbecue is uh, the finest anywhere in the world. And uh, if you come down here, we'll, uh, I will treat you to it and show you why Kansas City barbecue is the finest in the world. I, that is very tempting. I love food, I love barbecue. So that makes me wanna visit even more. Uh, here in Windsor, we're planning my, so they've uh, suspended in-person meetings in Ontario. Um, till right now, September, uh, for obvious reasons. So we're working on a virtual uh, beer tasting event. We're having beer delivered to brothers from a local brewery uh, called Chapter Two, which guys should check, should check out. And, and then the brewmaster is kind of leading us in a tasting. So anyways, um, since we, we discussed the simulation and, and you say nay and I say yay. Uh, this is a, well, let's have a, a, an open bet. If somehow it's ever proved one or the other, uh, I'll, I'll bet you a, a bottle of beer from chapter two for some uh, barbecue sauce from, from Kansas City. You, you are on, you are on. I will take that bet. So even if, if I win and we are to simulation, I'm sure simulated Kansas City barbecue sauce will taste just as good as if it were not simulated. Um, like we wouldn't know in the first place, right? So, you know, you we're, go. All, we're all just blips in the matrix, right? <laughs> all right, and with that, uh, go down to the description. Uh, I left a link for Masonicon, or sorry, I left a link for Esotericon. I left a link for uh, Grand Lodge of Missouri's 200th anniversary celebration information. And, um, Ah, screw it. Let's let's leave with this. Is there a link you can throw me quickly for the? And I, I'm going to get you in trouble all over again. I'm sure because there's a lot of ones to pick from. Your pick for best uh, barbecue joint in Kansas City. I will send you that link. I, I will indeed. Yes, I do have a preference for best barbecue joint in Kansas City. Yes, it probably will get me shot by a considerable number of. Uh, of, of people who disagree with me vociferously, but uh, I, I love a local joint called Smokehouse Barbecue in Gladstone, Missouri. There's a lot of people who say, it's just like, Matt, that's just like plain barbecue, but I love it. I absolutely love it. Their fried mushrooms to me are to die for. So lots of famous barbecue places, but to me, Smokehouse is like my home. Smokehouse Barbecue in Gladstone, Missouri. Yep. Awesome. All right, I'm gonna... I'll find them online and I'll leave a link down in the description as well for that and for chapter two. Why not? And with that, thank you so much, Worshipful Sir. It was a pleasure talking to you. Oh, it's great talking to you, brother. Anytime.